One must still have chaos in oneself to be able to give birth to a dancing star and embrace the void. Pathetic earthlings, hurling your bodies out into the void without the slightest inkling of who or what is out here. just some kind of horrific joke without a punchline that we're all just biding our time until the sweet sweet release of death don't don't save riley <laughs> take her to the moon for me okay Welcome, friends, to another episode of Embrace the Void, where we are low on ethics, so we're going to borrow from somebody else. I am your host, Aaron Rabinowitz, and my guest this week is Barbie Dongond, co-founder of Lift Life Travel and a professional gestation surrogate who is currently working on surrogate number three. Barbie, would you like to say hi to the voids? Hello, voids. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. We met recently at a like secular kind of event and we're chatting about uh, surrogacy and bioethics and, and lots of fun topics like that. And I thought it'd be really good to get you on the show to talk about that kind of stuff. Before we get into the surrogacy side of things, though, I want to talk backpacking. So what is Lift Life Travel? Thank you for asking. My business partner, Shannon, and I have a company where we bring groups of women, about 12 women, on backpacking adventures around the globe. We currently have a group in Peru, uh, as we speak, who are about to start hiking the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu. We go to Indonesia, Costa Rica, some other countries, and the women bring just one backpack. And it's very minimalistic and full of adventure and uplifting the ideas that you come home feeling quite lifted in your life and having spent time in nature and with other women and hopefully with yourself a little bit as well. And we're having a lot of fun and it's very fulfilling and meaningful work that we're doing. That's super cool. What are the different sites that y'all go to besides Machu Picchu? In Peru, we visit an indigenous um, community where they teach us about their weaving uh, practices and how they dye the wool. And that's very interesting. And then on the final day after, after the long hike and um, seeing Machu Picchu, we get in like a chocolate making class, um, some massages, mm. <laughs> some good meals, some shopping nice, and uh, some horseback riding. So it's a, uh, yeah, that's our most popular one. We're now offering that one several times a year. So yeah, the ladies are, are definitely on a journey right now. Very cool. So yeah, let me ask why only women and why only one backpack? Uh, that's a good question. Only a lot of this is just driven by Shannon, you know, me and Shannon's own personal experiences being we both have big back. We, we were both backpack travelers um, throughout like our 20s. We both are former school teachers. We both taught overseas. And um, Shannon's about 10 years younger than I am, but we both had these very sort of similar life experiences. And we both felt changed by travel. We saw the world differently. We saw ourselves differently. 
And it was been so meaningful for us that we wanted to share that with others. Um, there, it's actually quite a trend right now in the travel industry. Um, women solo travel for women um, because either maybe women don't have a, a partner to travel with or their partner doesn't like to travel as much. Hmm. It's common even for married couples sometimes to take. My husband and I travel separately a lot just because we have kids at home and it's just financially and logistically easier for us to take our own trips. And we always say, you know, the kids will leave eventually someday and we'll go travel together then. But for now, we want to travel. <laughs> this, is the, this is the easiest way uh -huh. to do it. And so there's definitely a market for this of women who want to travel. And this is a way to not do it alone, but still kind of be a solo traveler. The one backpack, because um, there's no doubt minimalism is a part of this whole experience. Um, the idea of when you kind of let go of physical things, you can kind of let go internally as well. Uh, to be a good backpacking traveler, you don't need very much. And that's kind of what we're teaching women to do is like, here, here's how you be a real backpacker. And th there's lots of articles and conversations about the difference between being a traveler and being a tourist. And we really strive to be travelers, not tourists. Mm. So that means, you know, mm -hmm. staying just at locally owned places and supporting the local economy in the, in the best and healthiest ways possible. And, um, it's it's fulfilling. The idea is it's fulfilling for everyone involved. Very cool. How often do you personally lead the trips? Um, I don't lead them that often because I am often pregnant, as we will talk about. I, I was go <laughs> yeah, I was I was wondering how those. Okay, okay, that answers my next question. But, yes, okay. um, but uh, right, so Shannon has led most of the trips. We're in a period of mm -hmm. rapid growth right now, and we're definitely expanding our leaders. And we have a great. Um, Indonesian woman in Indonesia leading our trips there, same in Costa Rica. So in, and actually, this Very is the cool. last one Shan Shannon will do in Peru is we have a Peruvian local woman who will take over for us there. So we're mm. expanding and growing and uh, trying to get as many high quality trips on the calendar as we can to keep up with the demand. Are you eyeing new places? Like yes. if, if someone, you've got someone taking over Machu Picchu, is there like, what's the next stop for yeah. Shannon? So Spoiler alert, um, the two <laughs> itinerary, the two itineraries we're working on right now are both in Africa, which would be Morocco, and then also um, Ike Mount Kilimanjaro. And so mm. uh, we're those are in, in process right now. And hopefully within the next couple of months, we'll have those completed and ready to go to market. Is there like a particular ethos behind where you look? to go or is it just sort of like what draws your interest? That's a good question. Um, a lot of it um, is our trips are very budget friendly. We're, our trips are about half the price as competitors who do a similar thing. Mm -hmm. And we can keep these costs down in many ways. And some of that's by choosing the country that we go to that are it's more affordable to travel there. Um, for example, we don't have any trips to Europe on our calendar. It's just um, we might get there eventually someday, but that's a that's a much larger price point to to go to those places. Um, so mm -hmm. we're still in the process of growing our our customer base and our audience. So I think that that's a big one. We love the cultural stuff. We love learning about other cultures, and so yeah, we pick places that are where we want to go that are interesting to us. Yeah, that's interesting about the budget thing. You know, we're going to talk a bunch of ethics and I'm thinking like ethics of this this part of your life. Like, do you think about like 
the realities of it's cheaper to go to places that have been colonized and like there's a kind of trading on that fact and how do you kind of offset that sort of weirdness or anything yeah i, I will be honest with you i don't spend i spend a lot more time thinking about the current present moment and what benefits everyone involved now mm -hmm. because i can't I can't sure. personally change the history, although it's important to have, you know, an understanding and realization of all of that. Um, what I feel good about is, for example, um, you know, what our guide in a country like Indonesia will make from like one 10 day trip with us is probably more than she'll make in a month in her regular day job. And I feel good that we develop relationships with these family owned little, you know, hostels and B and B's and we keep going back and we form these relationships mm -hmm. with them and keep bringing them return business. And that feels like a more responsible way to travel. We're not staying at multinationals or things like that. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so I think that's where being, the traveler, not the tourist mentality comes into play. Mm -hmm. Since it's all women, I, have, I do have to ask, I guess, do you ever worry about safety or do you all take specific safety concerns because of that? That's a good question. We haven't, uh, we haven't had any issues with that. Um, we don't really go to places that are, um, that I would say are considered unsafe. Um, it is adventure travel. So yeah, I mean, we've had a couple broken wrists or you know, slip on as we're climbing up a volcano and you know, there, there's oh, wow. that aspect. But in terms of being unsafe, like human trafficking type of stuff or anything, we're not um, in places where that's a very high concern. We're always in a group. We do have some uh, partners that, um, help us a little bit that are men in other countries. Um, but I don't know that that's, um, they're just great partners mm. to work with. I don't know if that's because of a, a scared or unsafe feeling. Mm. Do y'all have any, like, how do y'all take into account things like either age or accessibility? Is it pretty broad or do you have some, some limits on like certain trips or things like that? Sure. So we never limit age. We are very clear about what the, what physicality is required. So um, it's not, you know, it's here's the adventure. Here's what it is. Here's what you should physically be able to do. And if that is you, come on, <laughs> come on in. You know better than we do whether that is you. An example would be Machu Picchu is unquestionably our hardest one because it involves hiking at such a high altitude for several days. Most trips aren't that difficult. Mm. But for example, we'd give a benchmark and we'll say, you know, you're most likely ready for this trip if your lung capacity can handle running four miles without stopping at, at sea level. And if you can climb stairs like wow. up and down for an hour without stopping, not fast, doesn't have to be fast, but if you can do those two things, those are pretty good benchmarks that you're going to be fine on the Inca trail. So with all of our trips with Costa Rica, we just added in, so that's very water heavy activities. So we added in, you should sure. know how to Swim. You should know how to swim if you are going to Costa Fair. Rica. Fair. Yeah, things like that. Yeah, thinking about the altitude. I mean, I lived in Colorado for a while at altitude, and like it makes a difference. 
Um, and that's that's a pretty hard like four miles or you know an hour of stairs is not nothing. That's pretty substantial. Yeah. Um, right. But makes sense if you're you know not just hiking but hiking at high altitudes that way. Um, yeah. Have you ever I, uh... had like issues where you had to like pull people out early because of endurance issues? We had a couple groups this past April that went and a couple people, you fly into Cusco, which is at 11,000 feet, and they didn't even start the trip. They, they just stayed in Cusco. And we did have one woman who started on day one and the guides, uh, because day two is the hardest on the Inca Trail, the guides made her turn around and go back. They saw her struggling too much. It's like, you're not going to be able to do this. They still had a great time. They still enjoyed Cusco and they ended up taking the train and meeting the group at Machu Picchu. So, you know, we're all mm -hmm. about that. It's the journey, not the destination. And that we, you know, make, we make it as good as it can be no matter what. And try to you know, like accommodate people as best you can in these different situations and stuff. So, yeah. Um, you know, the, the great thing about Cusco is it's it, as is a fairly tourist place to be. And so it was not hard for those women to navigate <laughs> getting on the train and um, getting to Machu Picchu. I feel so bad that you keep saying Cusco and all I can think of is Emperor's New Groove, but I'm just going to name it so that it doesn't make me feel too guilty. I don't know what you're saying. What word are you saying? Oh, Emperor's New Groove. Uh, oh, Emperor's New Groove. Okay, sorry. I didn't understand. You're saying Cusco and I'm just thinking of Cusco-topia and Emperor's New Groove. <laughs> Okay. Um, anyway, uh, so yeah, there we go. Now, now that's out of my brain and onward. Um, so yeah, that sounds all really cool. So as you mentioned, how does all of this square with the like professional surrogacy stuff? Sure. That's a good question. The, I love surrogacy. I love being a surrogate. This is my third time as a gestational carrier. My husband and I have two children of our own, two daughters who are nine and 11. Um, and I'll just say for the record that I am 43, almost 44 years old. And um, okay. the Thank biggest thing how, <laughs> no problem. The, uh, how it mostly ties in is surrogates, gestational surrogates are compensated in the United States, not in most countries, but in the United States, we do allow for compensated surrogacy. And like a lot of other surrogates I've met, the Compensation from surrogacy has allowed me a level of freedom to not go work a standard nine to five. My background is in teaching. My uh, be began my career in teaching, and uh, I also have an MBA, so I like the business stuff as well. And um, I have not had to go get investors to start this business up. This is something we were able to self fund uh, because it takes a lot. It takes a lot of capital and a lot, you know, to plan these trips and and to get it off the ground sure. and going. And the surrogacy has given me uh, the freedom to be home with my kids, do the work on the business that I want to be doing that needs to be done and not try and also work a nine to five and launch the business at the same time. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be able to make that happen. Yeah, that's definitely an interesting story and i want to like unpack a bunch of different parts of that so maybe let's start at the very beginning like what attracted you to surrogacy as an activity and <laughs> how did you learn about it like what is the process of ending up in that space that's a great question when my kids were about two and four they were still pretty young and i remember hearing myself saying to people um 
at that time I was working at a Montessori school. I was a teacher at a Montessori school. And so I was around a lot of women, a lot of kids and, you know, kids, women, pregnancy, that w- those were common topics of conversation. And I remember hearing myself continually saying to people, oh, I wish I could be pregnant again, but I don't really want another baby. Like we're good with our family, but like, oh, I really <laughs> miss being pregnant because I love being pregnant, which is a common characteristic of women who go into surrogacy. And um, I think it was one of those things where like your phone hears you talking about stuff and then gives you ads. <laughs> so I surrogacy mm. wasn't even on my radar. It wasn't on my radar. I had looked into egg donation, which I ended up not doing years prior. But anyway, I started seeing Facebook ads for surrogacy. And I was like, huh. <laughs> and then it bega- that began the whole process of like getting my husband on board because you do, you, the interesting note, you cannot be a surrogate without your husband's, I don't want to say permission, that's not the right word, but he has to sign off on all the, le- <laughs> he has to sign off on all the legal paperwork as well saying, hey, I don't have any claims to this child and, you know, all, all of these things. And so um, you can't that seems just like say, permission wow, to me. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. And it seems like that to me at first too. But when you read the legal paperwork, you're kind of like, yeah, you don't, you don't want anyone coming and saying, no, this is, I have some type of right to this child that's right, genetically were, not yours at all. Like if he didn't want you to do it and refuse to sign the paperwork, you couldn't do it, right? You, yeah, you wouldn't legally you couldn't get gained. So, legal so he, he does have to consent in that sense. Like, he has even to if the consent. paperwork is not like I'm consenting to it. It's just like, I'm signing away my right to this kid. Like there's still a whole consent thing going on there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So that was, you know, conversation. And does that make you feel uncomfortable or is that like, how do you feel about the, like that part of the process? I think when you say it like, oh, I have to get my husband's permission, that feels uncomfortable. But when you actually le- read the legal contract, you're like, yeah, if I were on the other end of this, if I were the intended parent, you want everyone being on, you need everyone who could possibly cause any roadblocks to agree that we're not going to have roadblocks. And so when you read the contract, you're like, yeah, this makes legal sense of why this spouse would need to sign off on this. Man, I, I listed a bunch of questions before this, and what you just said has <laughs> opened a door to a whole new world of like, I know. How, what it's... level of inappropriate questions am I allowed to ask you about you this can subject? Ask any, you can ask any questions. I'm an open You understand that it. any question is a really dangerous thing to offer to a philosopher. If I'm not right? comfortable like... answering it, I'll just tell you. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, okay, so let me ask, right, like since you brought your husband's sure. uh, um, marital consent into the conversation, right? What does the contract look like? What are the rules for what your behavior is sort of sure. at each stage? But let's start, let's start with the very beginning, right? Like, how do you, like, to put it very crassly, like, how do you make sure that it's not his kid or something, right? Like, right. you have to abstain a, for some period of time or yes. something? Yes, you, you do. do. Okay, abstain. okay. Yes. Well, tell me um, more. <laughs> I will tell you more. So um, contractually, you do have to abstain for a period of time. Uh, my husband's had a vasectomy. So if I wanted to um, adjust my contract, I could say, well, my husband's had a vasectomy, so I want this on my contract. And they would probably agree to that. I am so like, I don't want any more of my own children. That scares me to death. I will gladly abstain. I will take every extra precaution <laughs> that there is because I don't want 
I, I don't want another if you didn't, newborn to bite. Would they have to like do genetic testing to like make sure or something? Or um, like... There has been. So we're, I'm in the state of California, which is the most surrogate friendly state in the country and really in the world uh, for surrogacy laws that protect both the surrogate and the intended parents. And, um, oh my gosh, I told you this before, if I lose my train of thought, it's because I have pregnancy brain because I am 20 That's weeks okay. pregnant right now. So um, That's okay. So you're explaining to, to me <laughs> the rules of like testing whether the yeah. kid is the, yes. the surrogate's kid. <laughs> I'm, I'm, back, I'm back on track. So when you, there's all these steps, there's medical clearance, there's psychological clearance, there's legal clearance. When you go through your legal clearance, um, you have a conversation with your lawyer and Every time I've had this conversation with my lawyer, they will go through previous cases that they know of to, you know, and they always bring up this one case in California where a woman did end up giving birth to her own child. And I don't know how quickly they found that out. I don't know testing. I don't know if there was, um, you know, if it was obvious just because of race or something like, I don't know the details of that, but has it ever right. happened? Yes. Is that incredibly rare? Yes. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. So I want to talk through this process a little bit. How do you feel, first of all, about the fact that this is advertised in this kind of way? Because, you know, one of the big arguments around this is, should this be something that you can get paid for at all? Ethically, sure. is it coercive to offer you money in exchange for this service? Um how do you feel about, like, is it that broad ethical question and specifically about it being targeted Facebook advertising? Yeah. Um, I'm grateful for the Facebook advertising because I would have never learned about it if I hadn't found out. Um, I, this is my own comparison. <laughs> I often compare being a surrogate to being like a professional athlete, which is hilarious because if you saw my body right now, you'd be like, you don't look like a professional athlete. And so, Hey, there's a lot of sports out there. I've seen a lot of different body types for professional athletes. That, that's true. The reason I compare that is because professional athletes are, you know, they work hard to maintain their shape, but they're also kind of genetically lucky as you know, you, you study and they get compensated mm -hmm. and they're hard, they, you know, they push their body pretty hard and they're compensated for that. And I always say that for me being a surrogate, because the bar for medical clearance is high. You can't have had any, you know, you have to have almost a perfect birth history. You can't be a surrogate unless you've given birth, by the way, that's a question a lot of people have. You can't just find a random single young woman and be like, Hey, do you oh. want to be a surrogate? Yeah. You have to have birth history. You cannot, you, you can't do this unless, because you can't really consent to something that you don't know what it is. If you've never been pregnant or given birth and then it's also risky for the intended parents to choose someone like that as a surrogate, because you don't have a birth, you don't know her birth history or her ability to carry. And there could be issues. So that's a big difference from an organ donor. Right. We can, we can, it, we can it, give, so, so sometimes it's, you know, like surrogacy is sometimes compared with organ donation, but like I can consent to organ donation without ever having had an organ removed. Oh, okay. I've never heard that comparison, but I see what you're saying, but I guess the, in specifically this case, on not, the, like, you know, yeah. selling your organ right. side of things, right? Sure. Like, you know, kidney mm -hmm. markets. Yeah. In this case, I mean, I guess I'm consenting to renting out my uterus is what I'm doing. And 
uh, consenting to an experience of pregnancy and birth, which I do know what that's like. Now, it doesn't mean every pregnancy or birth can't be different, but I've been through it. I know what it's like. Whereas Does this make you a landlord? Would... Wait a minute. Are you a bad person now because you're a landlord? Have I accidentally <laughs> had a landlord on my show? No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> Our you said rent, you said renting out your uterus. You said renting out your uterus. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute. Are you is surrogacy being a landlord? What have the Marxists I mean, said about this? Um, no. Wow. <laughs> I don't uh, know. Yeah. So, so yeah, but that, that, I mean, like that, that's a really interesting. So what are the other medical, medical requirements? Like so, you have to have a kid. You need to, <laughs> yeah. obviously you need to have, uh, you can't be a smoker or a drug user. Um, you can't. Can you have you a have past to, history? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know the answer to that. Um, that is probably covered in what's called psychological clearance. So all surrogates. So first is medical clearance. Like, are you even, can your body do this? What's your entire birth history? Um, and they do what's called, at least in my experience, we've done a hysteroscopy, which is where they go up through the vagina into the uterus and fallopian tubes with a camera, which as a former science teacher, I find fascinating. Um, it's, I have not found this to be a painful procedure. Who pays for this? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great In question, too. In our for-profit too. society. <laughs> yeah, the, the parents, the intended parents pay for everything, everything. And I have, um, I've met dozens of surrogates um, over the years. And sometimes I'd hear a surrogate sometimes kind of complain about all the testing and blood work and all the stuff. But my thought was, wow, we're getting like this level of health care and diagnostic tests and all these things that you would not get as a screening. You would only get these if you were having problems. Like you are going to be assured that you do not have cervical cancer, that you do not have, you know, anything odd in your sure. blood, anything. And so I've always seen this as a healthcare perk that I'm getting this like not paid for by me level of healthcare. Um, that's mm -hmm. always just been my viewpoint. I've used that always sure. as a perk of surrogacy. Um, even okay. though you do have to go to all the appointments and all that stuff, but so you don't, so, so you don't even know if you can do any of this until you've already met someone who's willing to pay for all this testing. Well, like, not necessarily. What are the steps? Like, you, like you, you find an agency and the agency finds yeah. you people and then you start going through the medical tests or. Uh -huh. So most, I think for most people, and I went through an agency through my first two surrogacies. I'm doing this one privately because I feel like I know what I'm doing now. The agency mm -hmm. I worked with before they ever met, they absorbed the cost initially. They agency absorbed the cost of all the initial medical testing to say, hey, is this e person even a candidate? And I think that's, that's, that's probably the, okay. the most common situation. Once you've done right. it successfully. So they, they find candidates and then yeah. farm you out. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, sure. We prefer matching as a, <laughs> as a matching, name. Matching, right. Um, no. Yeah. Well, you, you referenced the, you know, the, sports, the sports teams. So I was thinking of <laughs> yeah. like in that, in that context. Go. Right, yeah. like, but uh, surrogates do have uh, choices—a choice in who they match with. So, um, okay, mm -hmm. yeah, it's not like I, I assume everyone yeah. has pretty radical consent on on all of this kind of stuff. Right? Like, yeah. <laughs> is there any pressure, like, if you're a surrogate and you're with an agency and they've paid for this testing and like you keep turning down potential candidates? Is there, um, like, 
Not necessarily. And I'll tell you, some agencies are better than others. There is no doubt about that. I love the agency I was with. Um, they were really excellent matchmakers. Um, it was owned by a couple. It was, it was kind of a boutique experience. It was in here in Orange County, California. And I was incredibly impressed and happy with how they ran everything. Not all agencies, I don't think, are that um, uh, intentional in creating mm -hmm. like the perfect match. And some do it different ways. Um, but you are asked before you, you, you fill out so much paperwork and you're asked, you know, a bajillion questions, like questions like, would you carry for a single parent? Would you carry for a gay couple? Would you carry for an international couple? Would you carry for a couple that already has children? You know, there are all these questions. Would you carry twins? Would you carry triplets? Would you carry an embryo that has not been um, genetically screened? And so you are, what are your mm. views on, would you terminate the pregnancy under what under what circumstances? And so there's these really personal, really thought provoking mm. questions. But if you're really honest with yourself and really honest, you that will guide you to a, a good match um, so that. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's really fascinating. <laughs> Well, no, I mean, I'm just like, these are, there's just so many ethical questions that jump to mind with all of the so steps many. of this. Like, so you, you said, you know, gay couples. Um, my first question is, of course, like, is it like, what are the legal rules about like refusing to serve, you know, is it like, like going to come into a cake shop kind of situation or something like that? Or like, right. at the same time, I also am curious, do they ask you other things besides other identity things besides a gay couple? Like, do they ask you about race? In any yeah, way, uh, or they did not. They did not ask me about race. I do know an application that I looked at of intended parents from another country said that they did not want a Muslim surrogate. Um, they are from a country that has a history of discriminating. Having said that, in sure. my experience, um, there are not. In, I'm not saying not ever anywhere, but there are not a lot of Muslim surrogates for because of religious reasons. Um, so um, they, I think that is asked perhaps on the intended parent side. I don't, I don't think it comes out and say, is there any hmm. race you wouldn't work with, you know, or any religion you wouldn't work with, but they are point blank asked, you know, what your preferences are. Do you have anything you're not comfortable with? It's interesting though, that like the surrogates are asked about the like sexuality of the parents, but not any, like are any other preferences aren't asked for on that side of things that you know of. Sure. And it's interesting because there are some surrogates who will only work with gay parents. They kind of feel mm. that's a, that's a calling that's, you know, who they're drawn to. And I think it's, okay you know it's not okay to discriminate and you know it's okay to know what you think is going to give you the best most meaningful experience it's incredibly emotionally meaningful for example I as you can tell from the business I run I love working with women I feel strong connections to other women to I have I'm very connected so um as much as um 
you know, I support, you know, all communities and people who want to raise children. I want an experience with a woman who's, you know, I think I identify and connect with that and feel a lot of empathy because usually with heterosexual couples, what I always say is surrogacy is the solution after all the other solutions didn't work. This usually means there has been a lot of trauma, loss, miscarriage, failed IVF attempts. And when women emotionally have been through all of that, um, I feel, I do feel some, I guess calling would calling is very meaningful for me to be the person that comes in and says like, what, what do you, what do you need? Just, just a uterus. You can use mine. Like it's okay. You know, and I like, um, I like to be part of, if there's a healing process that can occur through surrogacy, I, for women, that's very meaningful for me. And so everyone has their, their different places that they will find meaning. Um, and so I think it's okay to be really honest about what experience is going to be the most fulfilling and emotionally satisfying for you to have in surrogacy. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's like, it's hard, you know, when, when I do ethics stuff, I'm always just like, it's complicated, it's complicated, it's complicated. You know, it's like, when you talk about those, that, those meaning issues and the like deep interpersonal stuff, I think some folks might have the inclination to say, well, doesn't the financial part of it, you know, isn't it an intention with that, right? Like, if this were just like you personally helping someone, and you had a preference for helping one person over another, it's less of an issue than if it's like, this is a business and businesses need to cater to, you know, everyone and not be discriminatory. And if it turns out that this business, you know, for, for example, like you mentioned the Muslim thing, like if you, if we were to find out that like certain individuals have really hard times getting access to surrogates because of their religious or ethnic background or something that would seem like an equity or access issue, that we would want to address if it was a business, but it's a different conversation if it's like a, a calling. And like, you know, it doesn't mean that we can't find balance between these things. It's just like, do you experience tensions back and forth between them as you're working through the process yourself? Yeah, and you know, the whole concept of it being a business is very interesting. So certainly the agencies are in the business of matching. But when mm -hmm. a surrogate receives comp compensation, it does not come from the agency. You're not paid by the agency. You are privately paid through a trust that is set up by the intended parent. So it is a private financial arrangement. It is not a public, you know, I am not, I don't have an LLC set up for being a surrogate saying everyone welcome to my uterus. You know, I have mm -hmm. this private one-on-one -on -one financial relationship with the parent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of like, there's a lot of ways in which I think it's interesting that I, I, I'm very sympathetic to what you're describing in terms of the wanting to help people and things. And then there's like the challenges of doing it in a way that, is accessible for people and doesn't like, do you have concerns about like, because of the costs and things, this is predominantly available to people of privilege or it is a hundred percent. There's yeah. no doubt about it. Surrogacy is prohibitively expensive. 
for a large swath of the population. No doubt mm -hmm. about it. Um, I think a lot of things in technology, and this really is biotechnology, um, and it's, it's a newer thing in our society, and it's gotten more and more um, the, the rate of success with IVF in general has done nothing but get better and better and better and better pretty quickly as technologies get better. And I, that has, I think, helped make IVF in general more accessible to people as, for example, what used to maybe take people five, six, seven tries, seven rounds of IVF, there's a good shot that it might work on the first, the first try. Um, mm -hmm. and so I think like all things with technology, things start very expensive with new technologies, whether it's an iPhone or, you know, whatever it is. And then over time, price comes down, you start to see more companies covering IVF, rarely surrogacy, though I have heard of a couple of companies starting to cover it, like through, yeah. through the benefits. These are rare exceptions. Um, but I think that's the nature of the game with technology and how it gets better mm. and cheaper over time. I don't think having a surrogate um, is anything, you know, from the surrogate perspective, I obviously think surrogates deserve to be compensated. This is a, this is a nine month babysitting job. You are caring right. for someone else's child. And, you know, for me being in the travel industry, one of the restrictions is contractually, I cannot leave the country while I'm pregnant with someone mm -hmm. else's child. And mm -hmm. I agree to that. And so, you know, the, you will often hear people say like, they're okay if someone's just volunteering to do this. This, this is always the irony to me. They're okay sure. with someone doing this at, you know, voluntarily. And the reason they're okay with that is because they think that compensated surrogacy will somehow be exploitative for women. And in my head, right. I am like, if you were thinking that someone should just do this for free for nothing, that's exploitative. <laughs> like that is, we do that in a lot of areas um, with women. Uh, you see that all the time, like with elementary education being a very, you know, not high pay. I used to be an elementary teacher. There's a reason I don't do it anymore. It's not very highly compensated for the amount of time, effort, intellect that you have to put into the job. And right. a lot of the reasons that people believe that we somehow get away with that as a society is because a lot of elementary teachers are being able to do this job because they're subsidized by their husbands or their partners higher paying position and that because you're just a caregiving nice person like you should it's a you calling do, right. yeah and you should just do this you know for this very low wage and so mm -hmm. i see that same sort of mentality in this belief that well if you want to be a surrogate you should just do it for free it's like i don't think when people have that opinion that they really know all, everything that goes in to this level of responsibility and commitment and that expecting mm -hmm. someone you can do it for all the right reasons in your heart, but that doesn't mean you still shouldn't be compensated just as an elementary teacher or a nurse or like shouldn't be compensated 
just because they're in a caregiving field. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, so I, I'm sympathetic to the coercive concern. I just don't think that the answer is preventing the for-profit surrogacy. I think this is, a you know, just one of infinite examples of like, there's no ethical surrogacy under capitalism, right? Like the problem is not compensating people. The problem is that their compensation is tied in a coercive way, potentially because of their broader situation. Like if you didn't need the money, then it wouldn't be coercive, but we do need the money. And so like, if you don't provide the money, it's coercive. And if you do provide the money, it's coercive because everything so this, under capitalism is coercive. <laughs> well, it's interesting you bring up the money part because this is, this is an interesting topic. So um, surrogacy is highly unregulated legally in the United States, like that. Yeah. Well, the good thing is, and I, I, so I made myself a note here. So the American mm -hmm. society for reproductive medicine, ASRM, which is like sort of like the body that makes like, here's all the guidelines and rules for reproductive uh, medicine. And mm -hmm. um, I'm become very good friends with the psychologist who ran all the support groups for the agency I was with. And she, she's been doing this for gosh, I don't know, 15 plus years. She's met hundreds, if not thousands of surrogates. And um, she passed along. What she told me is that you are just never going to see doctors go away from these standards. Could it ever happen in the history ever? Yeah. But she's like, doctors follow the guidelines and the practices. And she's like, I've never seen it. I've never seen a doctor be like, no, I'm just going to let this person who skip all these screenings and, you know, be a surrogate. She's like, I've never seen that. And so because you've got these standards in place, um, there are some like guardrails put in place that prevent exploitation. So the interesting one is around the income or the financial situation of the surrogate. So with the yeah. ASRM standards, you cannot in the US be cleared to be a surrogate if you are on any type of government aid or if you are in any difficult financial situations. So essentially poor women are excluded from the opportunity of compensated surrogacy in the United States. And that itself, and I will tell you right now, I don't have all the answers or even a strong opinion either way, but I am fascinated by the questions of the ethics of excluding this group of women. They don't get to decide yeah. that they're excluded, you know. So, you know, it's interesting that mm -hmm. you can assume that if someone is a surrogate, it has to be like, okay, the money's nice, but the money's not necessary for me to keep living. Like surrogates need to have a pretty high level of stability in their lives. It's, for example, um, in the psych eval, I'm always flat out asked, do you have reliable transportation? Um, the agency I worked with initially, they came and did a home visit, made sure to see what my home looked like. I was in a safe environment. They asked for bank statements, pay stubs to see what our entire financial situation was. And so this, they don't call it financial clearance because it's kind of bundled into the psych eval, but mm -hmm. there has to be 
there's a lot of women who would be excluded because of their financial situation. Mm-hmm. Does, and yeah, I mean, is that a good safety mechanism or does that just mean that like, this is a privileged activity on both ends of the process? Exactly. That's the question. That's, and it's a very good question. My personal opinion is, I will give an example. So Mm -hmm. someone I knew, a woman I knew, um, went through a divorce when she had a one-year-old and she was a hairstylist and um, she ended up choosing to live in low-income housing because she really only wanted to work part-time. Her daughter was very young. She wanted to spend time with her daughter. Now, this person, she didn't want to be a surrogate. She had had no interest in surrogacy, but I'm giving her situation is she had a stable life. She had a healthy lifestyle. She had stability, um, but she was choosing to just spend time with her daughter and not go try and make, you know, gads of money. Mm -hmm. She had reliable transportation, all of this. She could have gone to all the doctor's appointments. In my head, I'm like, this person in this situation would have been if they wanted to do this and kind of felt like this would be a good opportunity for them, a great candidate to be a surrogate, but they, because of the me, the government housing situation would have been most likely disqualified from what I understand. So those are the interesting questions. So when you're in this, I often wonder if the income needs to even be the question as much as the life stability question. So for example, if you were working an hourly position that you could not swap your shifts very easily, you could not you know, get time off, you're not, you m- probably might not pass the psychological clearance because you don't have enough flexibility in your schedule because there are a ton of doctor's appointments, a lot. <laughs> it's not weekly in the beginning. And if you, can't get to those appointments very easily, you're probably not going to pass the clearance. But they don't, they're not explicitly like signing off on this person for this person. The financial part of this is not going to be coercive because they are financially solvent enough that it doesn't really matter for them. The thing I know, I, I believe there is a direct question. If you are in any type of government aid. that I do know, I believe is a direct question. Um, you're, just ask about your stress levels around finances in general. Um, you're asked to describe mm. your situation. Um, and then I've never seen the, I don't think I've seen the report, but the psychologist has to write an entire report about what they learned. And then there usually also is a personality test as well. So that, yeah, I guess that raises a, a separate sort of practical question. You mentioned the trust. How is the money dispersed over time? Are, is it like you're being paid a certain amount, you know, during the process for living needs and expenses and whatever, and then like you get a big chunk at the end or? That's a good front? question. <laughs> yeah. So one thing I want to make clear um, is that surrogates have a lot of negotiating power. I don't know that they always re- realize how much negotiating power they have. And that's something I try and spread the word to, to potential surrogates. It's like, you really are in the driver's seat here. There are far, far, far more people that want surrogates than there are surrogates. And the surrogate can really call a lot of the shots. Mm-hmm. There's some shots you that are, you can't call that are standard. But sure. um, And so I designed my own compensation schedule for the um, 
the couple I'm with right now. And I based it on the ones I've had before that the agency kind of set up for me. So basically what I'll tell you is there's a, like a typically a base salary and then it's not a salary. That's the wrong word, a base compensation. And then there's these other little things you kind of get compensated for along the way. So um, let's just say for rounding purposes, your base compensation is a hundred thousand dollars. Most of that base will not start until nearly the second trimester of pregnancy. So you're in this for quite a while before the big compensation kicks in. I've always said all the hard work of surrogacy happens almost before you're pregnant. Like all the paperwork, all the, you know, psyche eval, talking to the lawyer, all the clearance. And then of course there's the meds, there's injections and all of this stuff that happens. And everything really... you tell me, I'm like, I have now 10 more questions. <laughs> Great. Party. Like, I know. How do you figure out the compensation <laughs> schedule? If you've had more kids, are you worth more? Like, you know, so... like, are you the Brett Favre of like <laughs> surrogacy? Cause you're so good at this. Like what's going on here? Um, yes. <laughs> uh, so... so you can, you can command more money because you're like, I, I can knock this shit out. No, I can do this in eight months. I can, I can bang this out. No problem. <laughs> In general, well, no, that would be a preterm pregnancy, and that is that would be bad. But yes, but in in general, experienced surrogates are compensated more than first time surrogates in general. Yes. Having said that, um, you know, it definitely is a supply and demand thing. As a surrogate, you can say, "I want to make this amount of money," and if there's a market for that, and you're willing to have some flexibility on, you know who you go with um from what i've Hmm. seen i mean i think it's always a balance most surrogates do want the right match and any sir any surrogate i've ever talked to i've talked to dozens and dozens money really isn't of course it's great it's yeah it's great to get that money there's no doubt about that it's a great thing you know we've our own kids we need to put through college and like all this stuff most surrogates I don't think in their core, the money's the main reason they're doing this. In fact, it's interesting to note that the two most common professions of surrogates are teachers and nurses. This is of no surprise Mm. that these are caring professions. Couple of gendered factors going on there too, right? Definitely, but these are professions that you care for other people's, you care for other people and then you let them go. And that is what you do all the time. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're oh, caregiving. Relationships. They're like temporary yeah. caregiving relationships. Yeah. There, there's mm-hmm. also one thing I really. This is the most common question I get asked about surrogacy, so I want to make sure I address it because I know people yeah, have yeah, this. Yeah. So the question I get asked, and I had the same question, so it's a good question. People always ask, "What about the attachment? Don't you get attached to the child? What is it hard to let this this child go?" That's the most common question. I understand that I had the same question. The answer to the question is no. <laughs> you do not get attached to this <laughs> child like you do your own children. And I've given this a lot of thought and the psychologist I told you that I know who's worked with hundreds, you know, thousands of surrogates. She said in all her years of, you know, doing this, the support groups, the psych eval, she's never once met a surrogate who wanted to keep the baby. She's definitely had surrogates who had postpartum depression or who were sad that the project was over, but she's never had Mm -hmm. any of them, but were like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I have to let this baby go. And there's a, there's some language that's important here is surrogates do not give up a baby. Surrogates give back 
a baby. The baby did not originate with us. It is not our genetic material. Hmm. Um, the baby start, the baby you really started as a an, you really are a landlord. <laughs> the baby, the baby started as the baby started as a five day old blastocyst, which is a stage of an, you know, embryonic development. And then we, it started originated with the parents and we returned the baby to the parents. My personal opinion, I've thought about this a lot. Like, why don't I get the same level of attachment as I did for sure with my own children? And it's made me come to develop this hypothesis that what attaches us to our own children in utero is planning for their future. So when I was pregnant with my own children, my husband and I were talking about which stroller we're going to get and what's our parenting style going to be like and our views on education uh-huh. and, you know, all of this stuff and, Projecting you know, childcare, and... all this stuff. And as you're like, you're imagining this human in these, you know, and that makes you feel attached. I don't do that with this baby. Let me say, I love babies. I love infants. I have a master's in early childhood education. I love development. No one doubts it it at this point, Barbie. All of it. (laughs) But, and when the baby's born, it's special, it's wonderful, it's glorious. But I will tell you, there is no situation that I want to bring this baby home. I want to go home and go to sleep. The parents can go home and be up all night with this newborn. And so a common emotion that surrogates do have um, after the baby is born is relief because it's like, okay, we, I, we did it. It sure. was successful. It was great. I, you know, j- job completed. The parents are thrilled and there's a lot of emotional satisfaction in all of that. So I did want to put that out there because that is the most common question that I get. I, how I do feel about the, the baby, I compare, I, I compare heavily to when I was a classroom teacher I feel very much for this child like I felt for my my young students where um, I care for you, I want to nurture you, I'm invested in your well-being, but at the end of the school year, which coincidentally is nine months, I don't want to take you home with me. I want you to go on your journey like you're supposed to go, and I'm so glad that I have been able to contribute you know, some goodness mm-hmm. and nurturing into you, and now it is time for you to go on, and that is exactly right. how I feel about the little one I'm carrying. It's it's so funny. It reminds me so much both of doing theater where it's like you do, you, you know, all this rehearsal up to a big performance and then it's done. Um, and also like working with kids at summer camp where it's like, I love them and I love being able to hand them back at the end. Um, so we're running a little short on time here and I have roughly 10 million more questions now <laughs> when, I, when I, we started. Um, but I, I want to leave it open here for you. Are there like, any things that we haven't talked about that keep you up at night about this process or like things that you think would be important changes to the system that would really improve quality of life for surrogates stuff that you feel like is really like a gaping issue with the system at this point? Um, That's a good question. I am very fortunate to live in the most surrogate friendly state pretty much in the world. And so my experiences have been incredibly positive you know, I know surrogates who have not had as great of experiences, but I don't, but I think all of us knew the risk going into it. We were all very informed in writing verbally. There were all these steps along the way. And so I don't have concerns, especially as it's done in California. I don't have any concerns. I think the system's done very well uh, for protecting both intended parents and surrogates. Um, with consent and and all of that. There are 
where I kind of feel bad for both for both intended parents and surrogates are in the states that you it's either ex, explicitly explicitly illegal or um, very difficult. There's a lot of hoops to jump through. So in a lot of states, not a lot, a few states, um, the parent, for example, I'm never on the I'm never on the birth certificate. I'm not listed as a parent on the birth certificate, and that's because California allows for what's called a pre-birth order. So legally, this is something done by a judge legally before the birth that says this child belongs to these people. They're going on the birth certificate. We all agree. Great. There are states that don't allow for that. So if someone is a surrogate, they're listed on the birth certificate and, and the parents almost have to do mm-hmm. almost like have to adopt their own child. <laughs> and it's weird right. for everyone. So it becomes like you yeah. said, more of that, like giving back, giving back instead of not giving back is, um, you know, giving two instead of giving back yeah. or giving away. Right. It, yeah. It's, 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 no one wants to go through that. And so, um, you know, it, I think it'd be great for surrogates and intended parents to have you know, an easier system. Um, but in the end, I'm incredible. I love surrogacy. I love it. I love it so much. I love families. And I love that there's um, women who, women and other and men as well, who've been on this journey and longed for this child for so long and have been through so many hardships. And I love being part of the solution. I love being there at the end point and say here you go here's your baby and thanks for inviting me along on the ride with you well given how much i problematize everything i think that's a really good nice point to wrap us <laughs> on and i will torture you with a bunch more ethical questions after dark in the in the <laughs> vip so um but in the meantime i have to torture you in a different way okay um, though you've been so wonderful um i now have to put you to the test so this is the enlightening round Enlightenment comes from within. So this will be similar in your experience. It's probably to the psychological testing that they put you through. Um, No, I'm going to give you a list of 10 things and you're going to tell me, are these things real or not real? Okay. All you get to say real or not real. Real or not real. Explain what you mean. Right. It's just real or not real. Those are your only options. No hedging, et cetera. Okay? Okay. You ready? I'm ready. All right. So first I have to find out just to check. Is anything real, Barbie? Yeah. Okay, great. So let's find out what's real. This is a philosophy show, so sometimes I get a no there. Uh, okay. Bodies, real or not real? Real. Great. Like I said, philosophy show, so some of these may be confusing to you. Minds, real or not real? Oh, my gosh. Real? I feel <laughs> like I'm not... <laughs> <laughs> free okay. will real or not okay. real oh my gosh <laughs> Jeez, that's a tough one i can't take a pass oh my gosh oh that is such a hard one mm-hmm. oh. yeah that third uh, one's a bit of a drop off okay i feel like i want to say real but i want to put like a million asterisks behind it but i know well, i can't do that luckily you don't and can't okay so. okay all right I'll go with real okay <laughs> luck real or not real real okay demons 
not real. Okay. Afterlives. Oh my gosh. I don't know. <laughs> How do you know? How do you know? Can't know. How do you know? Oh, I mean, I know I'm only supposed to say one word. I'm going to go like use my like former science nah. teacher brain and go not real. Sorry. I gave a caveat. I know I'm going to go not real. <laughs> okay. Not real. Wonderful. Truth. Oh, oh man. I want to give so many. Um, I'm going to go real. Mm -hmm. Depending okay. on which Beauty. Okay. Oh my gosh. Subjectively real. <laughs> Sorry. I know I'm, I'm doing good. it wrong. <laughs> Justice. You're doing great. Uh, real. Okay. And finally hope. Real. All right. You survived. How do you feel? Oh gosh. I feel, um, I feel intellectually stimulated. So, which really makes me appreciate this conversation <laughs> a lot. And, uh, you are a very, very smart guy and I'm really honored to have been a part of this. So thank you for inviting me. <laughs> I see. So you respond to torture with flattery as your escape mechanism. That's understandable. Yeah. Um, no, this has been really yeah. fun, Barbie. I appreciate the chat. Um, I just have to deflect all compliments because of, that is my nature. Um, no, this has been a lot of fun and I'd love to chat with you a little bit more, but, um, for folks for the main show, do you want to let them know where they can find you and your stuff? Yeah. Yes. Um, I have a lot of people interested in surrogacy or people who may intended parents who may be looking to go down that route on Facebook. I post a lot about my surrogacy experience. That is Barbie, like spelled like the doll. Martins, M-A-R-T-E-N-S, and last name Don Gond, D-A-N-G-O-N-D. And on Instagram, I am B Don Gond. And our company is Lift Life Travel at that website. And um, I'm an open book. I've had people all over the country call me based on my Facebook post. And, you know, if you or someone who's really thinking about either being a surrogate or wanting to get a surrogate and you just kind of need, I don't give professional advice but I like to be a friend to anyone who needs a friend. And so, you know, reach out, send me a message. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for spending the time chatting about this. Um, and folks hang around and hear more of like the 10 million things that I want to know about now. Um, and if not, thank you so much for listening. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make this show possible. And thanks, as always, to our top-tier patrons. Our Archon-level patrons, Void-Pilled Eldrick Farmer, Alex Beneshek, Serious Inquiries Only, Lawrence Shielding, Dude Fix the Vote, and Grumble Grumble. And all of the thanks to our Archduke-level patron, Big Easy Blasphemy. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space, with my co-host Callie Wright of the Queer Explaining Podcast. And while you're at it, check out my wonderful editor Louisa Lyons's Filmed Live Musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also come join us at the Philosophers in Space and Embrace the Void Facebook group or email me at voidpod@gmail.com and... If you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Um, just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and bonus VIP content and all of this expertise. Most of all, whatever star you were born under, 
You are the void and the void is you. Thank you.